This is episode 23 of The Passive Hang, and just reminding you guys, the Library of Locomotion is now live on the website, thepassivehang.com. Check it out. It's a growing list of movements that you can add to your locomotion practice, featuring videos and tips to get you started. Thepassivehang.com. Really, really special one. Today, I have the self-proclaimed splits wizard emmett lewis on the podcast <laughs> welcome to the show thank you thank you thank you for having me thank you for inviting me i would like to make a claim on this one uh, self-proclaimed split wizard it's not it's a title i got from uh some of the people i worked with in dublin that they would go to visit the split wizard they're either pole dancers or other things and they kind of came up with this term themselves and then told me about it like a few months later so uh it's not me it's not me i'm not a <laughs> Enough to making claims to be a wizard. I think, uh, I think we operate like uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, any sufficiently advanced technology appears like magic. <laughs> well, it's all the um, mysterious techniques, right? You know, you wave your magic wand and then people walk out, you know, just with their legs splayed apart and they're fixed. Basically, splayed apart and never to join again. Yeah, that is the, uh, no one ever talks about, you know, the downsides of getting the splits, right? So, you know, per- per- permanent, permanent, permanent change in gait. Permanent change in gait, you have to widen your doors or walk sideways through them. Constantly uh, scraping your ties on the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess what's going on uh, currently in the life of Emmett Lewis, you know, like what does a sort of typical day look like? Uh, I think it varies reason to reason. So I don't know, for those of you who are listening in the future, we are still in semi-lockdown mode here in Ireland. So we are experiencing March the 904th of July at the moment. And that's just uh, continuing. So uh, it's kind of interesting. We had a, yeah, because we cancelled all of our travel this year. We were meant to come to Australia, actually. We went to do a mm-hmm. two or three month tour of Australia at the end of the year, but we had mm-hmm. to cancel that because you guys have closed your borders to yeah. riffraff like myself. Whereas back today, you would have accepted me greatly on a prisonship, <laughs> but you know, alas, that is it. So uh, yeah, so we cancelled our all of our tours, all of our work has been just postponed to next year, which is fine. So then that means we bumped forward a couple of projects we're doing. So we filmed, we are filming uh, six or eight new courses for Handstand Factory with myself and Mikhail Christiansen. Mm-hmm. And then we are also bumped forward what was meant to be a project for next year. We have pushed forward the Modern Metal to Mobility release, which we're going to start doing now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, things are pretty busy. Then between that, I have uh, all my online clients to look after as well. Uh, no in-person teaching at the moment, which is pretty good for time management. So typical day this week at the moment, or last week, I know we're filming for about 11 hours a day and then dealing with clients as well and mm-hmm. Jenny running around like headless chickens uh, <laughs> next week will be a bit calmer we'll be doing a lot of writing a lot of uh, well, desk work really mm-hmm. it's not the glorious movement lifestyle I will sit <laughs> at my desk and I'll not sit in a squat I'll sit in a chair and <laughs> type <laughs> I've always seen those little clips, right, of like, you know, people sitting in, in different positions, right, to, to go on the computer. And I've tried it and I don't think I last like more than a minute, right? I'm just like, it's just not comfortable. Like if I was to squat and yeah. try all these things, I'd just rather just sit. 
Yeah, it's just yeah, it's one of those things. I think a lot of people kind of glorify like the need to do things. Like, don't get me wrong, I get up and I move around a lot, and I'm a, a walking tinker, so I have to pace around my room, hmm. do things. But in terms of actually like so getting like quality, like banging out emails and other, like we have invented the superior technology of the desk and chair. Just, uh, <laughs> you have to watch out for the vices and virtues of it, I suppose. That uh, yeah, the vice is uh, it'll fuck you up eventually. But I think. Uh, try to mishmash these things. I think that people try to do that a bit too much or try to raise the octave of the practice by uh, mashing too many things together. <laughs> like, sitting in a squad is great. It's good for when you go to bus or you're just hanging out or mm. you know, show your movement to person by sitting in a squat. But no other resting position is allowed, just the squat. <laughs> <laughs> no couches allowed, just, just squat space. That's it, yeah. <laughs> just squat, yeah. Can't sit down on the floor. That's a... Uh, that's banned as well. You can only sit cross-legged if you do yoga. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned you've got like the handstand factory going on, like the modern methods of mobility. Like I've been witnessing, like you had this like new challenge recently with a 30 day kickoff, even a new yeah. hair- haircut, I guess, you know, yeah. what's, been, <laughs> what's been all the change with, I guess, getting all these projects off the ground? Because I know, you know, before you are probably just doing, what was it like more of the online coaching and the workshops? And then now it seems to be more shifting a little bit. So yeah, has that all been? Yeah, so it's been a sort of organic thing that I, I had a couple of realizations regarding the methods I use and how they actually work. Hmm. But then I needed confirmation to test them on a longer period of time with people that I'm monitoring. Mm-hmm. and once we've done that and then the dissemination of the methods then the dissemination of the methods can actually start in a way that i think a lot of people rush projects out in some ways they're just like i think they have something but i wasn't really gonna put something into the public sphere in this kind of manner until i had something i would consider pretty original mm. there's no point there's no point just coming out with the same stuff just do everyone's doing that and it's uh it's not really what i've been about so mm. now it's like okay we have the methodology we have everything kind of confirmed that it works good enough to me so now it's time to start actually giving it to the public in some way mm. so and kinda... how, how do you how does that process look like when you started coming up with ideas and then confirm them like do you have all these extensive notes or is it just like random observations like what, what uh, does that look like on your end it's i don't know i'm a strong believer in the process of iteration so we'll try something generally i'll try something out myself i'll get a a hunch or i'll get an inspiration from a different field this is where i take a lot of things i see what other fields are doing and i kind of look at them and i go well what would like let's say rhythmic gymnastics the sport that has the highest demand of flexibility training um, the highest kind of i'm not going to say super structure because it's different for every school but they have a very Mm. structured pedagogy of you take people in age three or four and then by age 15 16 they are mega flexible beasts Hmm. and you're like well how would that process look for an adult Hmm. and what would that journey be and how would you actually take that concept and apply it so you get that kind of idea like how would you apply that for an adult who doesn't want to be super flexible but has other sporting demands this is just one example so then it's like okay we've got these I don't know, I suppose it's almost like the role of an anthropologist observer because it's one of the things I clashed with a lot in my early journey. So when I was I was a circus artist like back many years ago, which is coming back a long time now, almost. Mm-hmm. I'm so old. Uh, but uh, <laughs> just 
this thing was like we had there was no real structured training in circus like it's not there is structured training in discipline and technique mm-hmm. and these kind of technical things but in terms of a this thing of body method i would term it nowadays of how do you actually change someone's body into the body of a circus artist and you know the same way like we have it in like things like how do you take a scrawny kid and turn him into a bodybuilder we know mm-hmm. how to do that how do you take a scrawny kid turn him into a powerlifter oh, we know how to do that, but no one really understood this. And I was like, well, there was no structured process for it. It just, either you were or you weren't. Mm. And then there was training. But if there was there, it just wasn't formalized. A lot of the flexibility training was a shit because it basically relied on having very talented people who came in from a very young age, either from a gymnastics, acrobatic, or circus background into the mm. universities. And then the coaching was uh, just relied on like, hold this stretch, hold that stretch. And you see that the same in martial arts. You see it in dance. You see it everywhere. It's like you ask them what they do for flexibility training. Mm-hmm. And then they they say, oh, I do this stretch and I do that stretch and I fuck around on Tinder for a few minutes in splits and I blah, blah, blah. It's not really structured. And, you know, oh, you want to stretch, you just stretch more and you want to get more flexible. And it's like, that isn't really a process. That is mm-hmm. just a library of exercises or a collection of exercises or just wishful thinking in some cases. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what goes into the actual technical training of the discipline and the development of the skills, then a different picture emerges. It's like, oh, you have all this kind of idea of like, okay, you must pay attention to line. So you're paying attention to an external focus on an aesthetic quality, mm-hmm. which also dictates the shape of the body. So we're projecting the mind shape outside the body, and then the body will begin to follow the mind shape. Now, people are probably wondering what the hell is he talking about. And a simple example of this is... You have sat down on your couch and you are watching Netflix and you are eating some popcorn and it's on your chest. Uh, then your phone goes off and it's slightly out of reach. Uh, you reach over for phone or your remote or whatever. Hmm. You reach over. Uh, you don't reach it. And you go, oh, okay. And then you go, oh, shit. You see the message and you go, oh, shit. That's from someone that is texting or thing. I better go. Then you reach and then suddenly your arm just gets that bit longer out of nowhere. You grab your phone. You don't even notice. Mm-hmm. And then you just do your thing and you throw it down. And this is that kind of idea that the intent was, this is the big realization, the intent was the driver of the change of the body. Mm. So by putting the intent in, it would set up all the nervous system connections, physical things that would then dictate what would happen for the body. And if you do it long enough, then we have the projection of the intent, the task, the objective, the something to achieve, would drive what would happen to the body once we've done enough of the exposure. Mm. So we expose you enough times to this. Now, this is just like normal weight training. Like we think about the classic, contract your muscles hard or try to move fast or whatever the sort of intent is. So it exists in sports training, Mm -hmm. but didn't really exist in flexibility training. All you would get would be told, relax. And then you go, well, relaxation is an active process that isn't really instructed. Mm. You know, it's just like, oh, breathe in and relax and breathe out. Well, how do you breathe in? What sort of breathing do we do? Mm. How do you breathe in a pike stretch? All these kind of things. They're not, it's not a formalized thinking that has this abstract body of knowledge that can be applied to it. Whereas in normal sports coaching, in basically every other technical discipline, or even strength and conditioning, which has obviously come a long way since the 70s, mm. it's very technical. It is incredibly flexibility training wasn't unless you're getting into the the ultra high levels of like contortion and kind of that level where there's a Mm -hmm. lot of teachers who really know this stuff, but they're working with a very specialized group of the population. Mm -hmm. So there was no real generalized method for doing it. And there's not, 
there still isn't like it's still one of those things that's very like if you think about the coaching for this example i'm using lately like how do we teach someone to squat like with a barbell very basic barbell exercise mm-hmm. uh, we have to go through this whole process of like how do they set up the barbell how do you use the safety rack which bar do you choose how do you put the weights on how do you put the spring collar on mm-hmm. what sort of footwear is better uh, and this is just before you even get to doing a squat same with bench press same mm-hmm. with bell curls same with push-ups like you know all these kind of things is like well this doesn't exist for flexibility or it does in some bits but it's not in a codified manner mm. so by getting all this together and getting then we actually have flexibility as its own technical discipline that can be taught iterated on it has its own concepts that would align with other training concepts that we understand but then how do they look in taking from the abstract to the application mm. and maybe going a bit deeper into like that intent portion right because i'm sure like when you first started trying to train for flexibility or like doing the stretches right like you're kind of like oh i want the middle splits right that's a form of almost yeah. like in, intent um so what did you mean by that like in terms of like how to perform that or a certain aspect of it okay so a very simple thing is like we have the idea of having a task uh, a tool to complete this task hmm. so we have our stretching position which is a tool and we have a task. If we go into the thing, we're trying to tell the body what to do. If I just fall forward under gravity into uh, as passive a position I can, mm-hmm. you're not really feeding the body information about what you want it to do. Mm. In fact, all it will do is resist the stretch because it wants to come back up to standing. So by having the idea of like, oh, I want to go deeper, that's not really that great. So that's an abstract concept. I want to go deeper. Well, why don't we take either a tactile or a visual thing and go, let's try achieve that in this position. So the classic one of folding forward and say, just a pike stretch, and I'm standing on a box. Oh, I can touch my finger here. So for those of you listening in the podcast, I'm just pointing to my fingernail. Mm-hmm. So that can touch my toe. Okay, well, why don't I just move to the next joint? So I'm not trying to go like, oh, super deep and thinking elbow. I'm thinking what is just achievable for the body? Oh, so I'll go to the next finger joint. Hmm. And that's my goal is to make contact with that on my toes. Oh, that has made contact. Let's go on. And this is kind of the stretching of the mind shape into something that's achievable in the stretch itself, which then sets up the preconditions that we can. Once we understand this, then using resistance and stretching is not only just like stretching you out, it's actually educative because we're Hmm. increasing the vector force in one direction to give a stronger stimulus that we're going in this direction and that we can actually work with it. Mm-hmm. so like by almost setting that like that measure where you can get that feedback to like your mind right then you can you can tell your body that's like okay like i can reach in a new limit is, is is that what you're saying it's yeah it's not it's not that it's just we're basically like yeah we're basically using the task there's something that we can constantly achieve and it's not gonna like you're not gonna go all the way down to your elbow in like Hmm. one single set or anything but it's this idea that like you're basically telling the body this is what we're doing this is what we're trying to do please achieve this within the bounds of the constraints we've set so on a pike stretch up it will have our hmm. knees locked and whatever we're working at this will mean that like so if i'm trying to achieve this and then we can also have set intensities how hard we're trying to achieve it this will mean all say the muscles on the front of the body all the deeper spinal muscles will begin to set up a chain of causation that will mean the calves, the hamstring, the glutes, the piriformis, the, I don't know, muscles of the skull, anything that's involved in extension will begin to relax because that's where you're going. 
Like that sort of conscious direction of intent seems to uh, to be applicable to just to like general strength training uh, as well. Yeah, right? well, this is this is like if we think about the concept of strength training, we have we, it's in strength training, mm. but people codify it as compensatory compensatory acceleration training where we move a lightweight faster. Mm. Think about this, or we think about like ballistic training and strength training. So we have a medicine ball, and if imagine I just throwing a medicine ball on a chest row, as people visualizing what I'm doing. So if I throw it, you know, or if I just move my hands in the same motion and took a picture, let go of the ball, and took a picture of the snapshot, most of the time it would look basically the same. Whereas if I went all out, the end position would look the same, but the intent and what happened between point A and point B is what dictates the effect. Hmm. If I have a ball, so we think of the classic wall ball and CrossFit, oh, we have a 10-foot target, then a gym gets a 12-foot target, everyone can suddenly start throwing 12-foot. Yeah, because yeah. you've given it's that thing and it's like it's a uh, it comes up so much like we see it in boxing like don't just punch the bag punch through the bag mm. but don't just punch through the bag like aim for the wall behind the bag so then you your body has something to stretch to mm. so it happens a lot but it just doesn't happen so then it's uh how do we find positions where we can set this up it's not easy and everything what sort of cueing do we have available we have tactile visual auditory if you're working with a partner, all these kind of cues that we can use in different positions that begin to make things easier. Then by using the process of iteration, mm. we're iterating in the set itself, so going deeper in the set, mm. by going, oh, I touch this, I touch that, I touch that. But then over the course of the workout where we're doing multiple sets of the same exercise, suddenly we're having an additive and synergistic effect over the course of them. So then every time we do a set, we should be going a bit cheaper, but the sensation shouldn't be changing. Mm. should just feel like it will feel just the same as the last set but you'll go deeper so it's almost like this extra variable right so let's just say like on a more basic level like sets and reps but then you have this like added task to complete to yeah. to keep on bettering the task each each repetition or, or something to yeah. to have that intended effect for flexibility yeah basically so it's just like it's one of these things that just it gets forgotten about in a lot of places, but we can formalize it as a thing. But it, it appears in a lot of places. You think of martial arts kicking. Oh, we'll kick the bag. Oh, try kick the bag a bit higher at the spot. Next spot up. Oh, ballet. Oh, your leg's not high enough. Lift your leg high enough so it looks prettier. Boom. It's all in there. It just wasn't been formalized and extracted out in a way that can just be applied outside of a discipline context. Mm-hmm. It was just like the, the natural progression of that, that skill or that art, right? That, that they just wanted yeah. like a, a prettier toe point or something like that. So over time they, they know that that's going to happen because they're aiming for that like ideal aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. So they have something to aim towards. So the toe point is a good one. So you look at your toe, you visually see your toes point and you go, Oh, it's not good enough. So then you can track harder, your foot cramps harder, but then you go, Oh, my foot looks nicer. So we have also an almost inbuilt reward system there. It's like you have a judgment of good or bad, deeper or less deeper. So, you know, with the name of what you title this, you know, like modern methods of mobility. uh, Yeah. I did wonder question like this, this concept of modern, you know, like what's traditional, what's, what's modern. Do you, do you make some sort of distinction? Uh, You know, it's one of those ones, as I say, there's, I said this in December, it's like, I don't do anything new. I just explain it in a different way than it hasn't been explained before. So it's probably the modern explanation of mobility training would be better, but it's just not as catchy as M3. <laughs> and yeah, like for 
this this new website and uh, this launch? Like, what have you got planned on this platform? So on the platform, the first thing we'll be dropping is some courses that will be similar in structure to Handstand Factory. Mm-hmm. They'll have a mix of theory exercises, be quite in-depth on sort of explaining the principles. We're still formalizing the content of how they're going to be because it's it's one of these things like once we... Once I had the system and other stuff is like, say, side splits, I use this example a lot. It's like I have 70 different side split on the exercises mm. in the system that I've come up with now. About 10 or 15 of them are general exercises for every single case example. And then the other ones would just be like specific cases that this person needed that or if this, do that. So it's kind of like, do we just, I don't want to. I don't want to exercise dump, but I want to have a good mix of curated content that is mm. useful for people. I don't really want to give set programs as in like, you must do this, this, and this, because let's face it, that's not how the body works. Mm. So then we need to have uh, some templating for people who just want to follow stuff, obviously, but then we need to make sure that it's adjustable for people who want to want to explore it a bit more. Uh, after that, then eventually we'll start looking at teacher training and other stuff to people to actually apply the methods. But that's in a year or two. Oh, that's, that sounds exciting. Yeah. I, I did want to ask you about this, like adapting to the individual, right? Because, you know, it, from coming from one side where you do like one-on-one online coaching, that's like very individualized, right? So now offering more online programs where there is some form of templating, like how do you achieve that sort of balance to, to not go, I don't know what it is, but like too standardized, you know? Uh, yeah, you know I mean? it's, yeah. Yeah. It's always that kind of battle of, it's one of those things people love standardization and just say you must do, you know, if we look at all the most successful programs that we have going, it's like you must do five sets of five. <laughs> why, why not five sets of four, five sets of six? So in general, like it's, uh, yeah, there has to be some way of adapting the program. It's generally always use ranges. So mm. we're going to hold for this, this, and this. So we'll hold mm. between 30 and 40 seconds. We'll have different, there's different flexibility phenotypes of so different types of people respond to different flexibility training. Mm. So then you have to have a way to educate people to find what works for them. Uh, once you have that, then you can go like, okay, you are this type of person. You are weak in this, this, and this zone. So then you need to work on this zone and you can ignore the other zone. And yeah, maybe you can, could, could you expand a little bit on this? Like, what did you call it? Phenol, phenol types? Phenotypes. Yeah. So it's just basically a way of saying, fancy way of saying type. So you have the classic example. We'll just use the classic one we have. The ultra hypermobile people who have low muscle mass, and then we have the people who would call make themselves think they are stiffer and have high muscle mass and have quite a high strength base. So these would be two very different people. Like you can just imagine you come into the gym and some dude can squat 300 kilos and he's just going, I want to add 20 kilos to my total in powerlifting. And you have someone who goes, I've never squatted weights before. They're very different people. So it's the exact same context in flexibility training. You come in and you go, oh, I'm a hyper-flexible yogi. Well, this person is going to need a different program than a person who comes in and is like, I'm a powerlifter, can't touch my toes. Mm. So you just have to be able to like establish these kind of typing. Go, okay, this person has a stiff fascia type. This person is hypermobile in these joints. So they need different programs. Uh, there should be a way to assess people. It's one of the big things that's missing in flexibility. No one really talks about Everyone's like, you must do this program and must build strength. Whereas like, say, you know, strength and range of motion is a classic one. And don't get me wrong, it's needed. But for some types of people, strength and range of motion will actually lock them up and stop their flexibility developing. Mm. 
So you need a different approach. So being able to sort these people out and give them what they need and the type of flexibility training they respond to, hmm. that is going to be one of the key things of what we have. Um, basically, I've done this by working with hundreds of people over the last few years and then just performing basically statistical analysis on what they've done in the programs, the results they got, and mm-hmm. their sort of assessments I use on them. So it's one of the Sorry. Yeah, that's interesting about this, like, you know, negative return on like this strength through length sort of principle because I've, yeah. you know, I've seen this a lot quite recently as well, you know, with, um, you know, if you, if you do loaded stretching or something, some sort of form of, of, of uh, that sort of uh, working on end range strength, right? Um, so what, yeah, what have you noticed with, uh, I guess, you know, the people that you've worked with, what type of person might not respond as well to that type of uh, training? Uh, just off the top of my head. So it's like this thing, it comes down to individuals. And it's not to say everyone won't respond because everyone needs to get stronger. You just might need to get stronger in the plane you think you are. Hmm. So a lot of people would say apply this to, I was thinking we can basically look at flexibility development as there's an active shortening of the muscles. That's what we're doing. We're either shortening the muscles in a very stretched out position or shortening the muscles in a very short position. If you have spent a lot of time training one of them but haven't trained the other one, mm-hmm. so you have an active passive insufficiency, then you mightn't be able to develop your range of motion until you've made one of them catch up with the other one. So we just mm-hmm. think both sides of the joint. If your biceps aren't strong enough, then your triceps will shut down mm-hmm. or not express all their strength, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So by having a way of just going like, okay, this person is, you know, this person is a match type. So their active flexibility, so the gravity resisted plane matches their gravity assisted plane. Then we go, okay, they're very close. Then they just need to train one of them and that will generally get the results of both. Oh, this person has never trained these active shortening type stretches. Well, then we need to put them on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also like with the super strong types, getting them to do too much strength work is what they're used to. And they're used to creating strong positions to work from. This can lock them down a bit. So we need to actually get them to hold longer times and learn to actually kind of release into the positions and lengthen out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, so. That's a really interesting thought about, yeah. Like, like it's like deloading the intensity, but then that means that you'd be able to relax or, 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 or lengthen out even more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those ones where, like, particularly if things are too, yeah, too intense, you won't go deep enough. So you need to be able to select your resistance the right way. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely had that myself. You know, like um, in certain stretches, that sort of thing. If you load it up too much, right, then you can't yeah. go deep because you're you're scared as well. You know, like you put a really really heavy def- Jefferson curl, right? It's not going to yeah. go deeper. I'm just going to not want to go down. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's that kind of idea as well. And then if you have someone who's working too heavy and then just keeps trying to push the weight, they'll actually lock the range in this zone that they're used to. Whereas hmm. if you get them to use less weight and you use the weight as an educative tool for the body, it's like, okay, we're using some weight that provides a traction effect in the vector we want. Hmm. So we're going down and down. The weight gives me an idea that I'm going in this direction. And then I decide to use the muscles on the front of the body, hip flexors, whatever on this and then push forward and down so then we are using gravity as a gravity and resistance as an educative vector on what we're actually trying to achieve mm-hmm. and you know with um 
all these sort of concepts that, that you're sort of mentioning, I guess, as people come on to the, the M3 syllabus, what do you try and like educate them on so that, you know, say, say they're looking a little bit past just like, give me a program, right? Like what sort of concepts, principles do you try to pass on to them so that they can start training flexibility effectively? So it kind of depends on which level we're talking about. So say with students who work with me on online training, I'll have a mix of people who want to learn stuff or just want the results. It's also, we have to look at the broader context. This is the other thing that people kind of miss is how the context of flexibility development in a greater development of strength, skill, endurance, these kind of other qualities that we can build. Mm-hmm. Like how does that actually work? So one of the things that we're, looking at in these things like okay we have our flexibility concepts but how do we express them in something else this comes back to like oh make it look prettier or mm. open your legs wider and so for that so we're training the flexibility in a, dem- a non-demandative situation so a classic example is like oh i am developing my splits for my split handstand mm-hmm. cool so we're developing that in the gravity resistive plane so we're going down and then we will work on a gravity neutral plane, which is in the handstand. So gravity is basically pulling the legs down. So it's doing the hip flexor work. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I'm actively trying to express a certain line, a certain excess aesthetic quality in my handstand as best as I can. Mm-hmm. And then we might be working on the gravity assisted plane as well. So we have this, but then the context of the program might be like, okay, I'm training my glutes to get the legs apart more. We're using a sumo deadlift in our strength training. We are training middle split isometrics or adductor flies to get the new range and open that out. But then we're also using it in this kind of aesthetic driven quality in a handstand itself. Mm-hmm. And do you find like that, uh, that, that activity of like actually using it outside of just, because maybe like people thinking when they think middle splits, they're just like, oh, I'm just going to do middle split, right? Like I'm just going to do more middle yeah. split. Like, do you find that? to be a missing key ingredient that they then have to have like some sort of outside context where they're using that range. Yeah. I think it's one of those big drivers. Eventually it becomes just inherent in your body. You can do it whenever, but it's one of those things that you see it so often. Like I've seen it so often with movement people. It's like, Oh, I do a 20 kg ISO chair split and I go completely flat or even beyond flat. If the hips are, and then they do a handstand that's like 45 degrees or they try to kick and they can't do it so it's mm. it's we have to remember strength like everything else can be flexible uh, context specific so like you can think of say well going back to our powerlifter friends they're always such a another target they're very easy to uh, quantify so the powerlifter who adds 50 kg to a squat mm-hmm. awesome really good in context powerlifting but doesn't add anything to his vertical jump or very little because the strength speed zone it happens in isn't context specific enough for transference outside of that. Mm-hmm. So it's this lateralization that we're always kind of thinking about is like the goal is to be flexible, not just do flexible training or flexibility mm-hmm. training. So, you so, got, so you're kind of trying to set up people as well to, to have like a good amount of transferability of that position, right? So that they're not just strong within that, say that chair split with a yeah. big weight holding them down, but, uh, I like how you mentioned it in different like gravity assisted or uh, non-resisted planes that they can still open their legs out wide, right? Yeah. Yeah. This was uh, one of the big questions I asked myself is like, how would you get flexible in zero gravity and free fall? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question yeah. when we start thinking about it because uh, 
if we we always exist in a field of gravity and it's always doing something to us obviously mm-hmm. otherwise we'd be floating off but then gravity in relationship to our stretch i'll just use a pike stretch because it's the easiest example of this so if we fold forward gravity is assisting the lengthening direction mm-hmm. not 100 percent because there is a bit of a horizontal vector but it's mainly vertical if we sit down well gravity is neutral i'm using a finger quotes here it uh, still exists but it's pulling at a right angle to our lengthening direction which is towards our toes mm-hmm. and then we think gravity resistance uh, the classic one the hanging leg raise so and that will be a hanging pike stretch so we think our pike stretch we're reaching towards our toes hangs are up toes to bar basically the same thing it's like well these are our three planes of gravity how do we actually educate the body to work on them and how would we manipulate our body if there was zero gravity the position is the same Hmm. It's always just going to be the same. Whereas, how would you do that if you're in free fall? I have, this, <laughs> I have this image of you now with this like scientific lab where you have, you know, like one of those big wind shoots or something to, to simulate this. And then you <laughs> furiously taking notes <laughs> of someone flailing and, and trying to perform a, a front fold. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> um, That's a good idea. Actually, I didn't think about that. <laughs> I think I need to do that, actually. Go to the nearest university wind tunnel. Maybe you get lucky. Yeah, Yeah, because they have one of those sky parks here in Dublin. It's probably closed at the moment where you can do the simulated uh, parachute jumping. Mm-hmm. So it make for interesting. Made, make for a good video, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned like utilizing gravity in different ways like just there you know say for the forward fold you can either like do a standing pike or you can do a hanging leg raise um do you stage them out so that it's like one before the other and if so yeah like what's the thinking behind that yeah so this is uh this is where things get quite interesting is if we take gravity as our if we can find that there's a roadblock so one of them should transfer to the other but if you're missing the skill in the middle one, when the gravity neutral plane, mm-hmm. then it doesn't transfer to the gravity resistant plane. So this is a key breakthrough. So mm-hmm. if I'm able to do, say I'm able to do a really good Jefferson curl, uh, my toes are in line with my elbows and I'm really flat. Then if we think about people who do a hanging leg raise, why can't they, why is their foot touching the bar and not mm. like coming through the legs? And you see this in circus a lot. It's one of those things I like to get really compressed on that. But if you do more work on the gravity neutral plane and learn how to express the flexibility and the alignments you do that are personal to yourself in that plane, then you'll be able to transfer to this hanging leg raise. So by going via the planes, you'll be able to get more skillful at your flexibility training. Mm. And this is one of the things is like flexibility training is a skill. Mm. People kind of think about, like, oh, you just go forward and touch your toes. No, no, no. These exercises are just as complicated as any other exercise in the gym, like mm. pull-ups, push-ups, whatever. They are pretty complicated to get right if we think of all the people we see butchering these exercises in the gym normally. Mm. Or just having, I don't want to say butchering, that sounds unfair, but just not doing them in a way we would consider the optimal way of doing this exercise because they haven't been educated. So if we think about that, and then we think about flexibility training, how it's normally done is like, oh, touch your toes at the end of your thing with no coaching. Mm. Whereas if we have a way of just educating you how to use your body better, it doesn't just rely on strength. Strength is just one of the things we can use to help educate the body and express itself. Uh, but then we can still go in and like do all these kind of internal connections, either using a task so we know what to do. We can use a sensation base. We go, oh, when my thighs touch my belly button, 
I have folded my thing too wrong, so I need to suck my stomach in and use the connection of my hip bone touching my thigh. Mm. And that's what will cue me that I have achieved the right aesthetic thing if I'm not mm. looking at myself. Yeah, this is really interesting, this use of like um, modifying your position in different vectors of gravity. You know, it's not something that I've personally like thought of too much m- myself, um, but it m- seems to yeah make a lot of sense. And so what you're saying is like almost like at the start, you know, you can use gravity as sort of assistance to, to get you started. But then from there, you can't really make this leapfrog jump to then going, oh, I'm going to start doing like hanging leg raises. You have to go through then like a seated position to get a deep forward fold before then allowing you to be able to start building the strength to lift your legs up right into yeah the maximum compression that you can achieve. Yeah. Yeah, basically. No, you know, so it's a very simplified way of putting it, but it's also like, you know, say you can do a pike and you can get your hands in line with your toes but you, you're hanging leg raise, you can't even get your leg past 90 degrees. Well, then you just got to build some general strength. It's not even thing. It's like it's we have this constant process of refining. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, you know, okay, I can touch my toes, whatever degree of bend that might be, and my legs are like barely parallel to the ground, it's like, well, you can move your torso towards your leg quite effectively, mm. but why can't you move your legs towards your torso? Mm. And do you, do you look for like, some sort of level uh, before you go okay maybe you should work in a different sort of position like they need to reach their toes first in a gravity assisted um, position before they should start it or is it sort of like you've improved a little bit there you might as well like now try it in a different position and then start closing the gap with the game that you've got this really depends on the person and what they're looking to do as much as anything else Mm. So you generalize like in the workshops we teach you to make a generalized flexibility template training, but these things could occur at different stages of the training week. So we could superset them. So we could just to give people an example of something they could play with. We could do a isometric seated pike compression to get the hip flexors and the short adductors flexing the hip in the right direction. We could then flip that 90 degrees to a Jefferson curl. Now we have all the muscles turned on. and We have good tactile sensation of the ones that are already firing. So then we can go down into our Jefferson curl and use these muscles that are now amped up to pull ourselves deeper, more effectively. But once we have stretched out the hamstrings and gotten them kind of going, oh, I've got this kind of zone. I feel what this is working on two planes. Then we could immediately go into with a little bit of a break into a hanging leg raise. We have what the positioning would feel like and then we're just working basically on the other side of the body to actually be actively shorten in a more mm. effective manner mm. so it would just be like an interesting three-step combination for people to try out yeah yeah i think that it, well, it sounds pretty holistic then right like you're you're sort of almost trying to cover all bases but uh, yeah probably in that sequencing then it's, it's quite important right like not to jump straight into the hanging leg raises but to do the other two first to get that connection before yeah. doing that yeah yeah, so this would be one way, and you can see this, you know, uh, just in a lot of flexibility programs and other stuff, we can work by working the classic one of like, if we go back to our original PNF manual, the contract, relax, agonist contract, where it's like, oh, we contract the lengthening side of the muscles, then we contract the shortening side to go deeper. One of the things we found is flipping that on the head and contracting the shortening side, and not just contracting it, really ramping it up with some kind of isometric or high speed exercise, mm-hmm. and then going into the lengthening side. And that just uh, just works better, basically. Mm, that's a little 
nugget of gold right there that I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm keen to experiment with. <laughs> um, so, you know, jumping on your website, you had like this really great article about like these seven principles of the, the M3 system. Um, yeah. I guess, yeah. How did you sort of come up with these? Maybe do you want to riff on these um, a little bit for the audience? Uh, let me just crack open that article so I know which order I put them in. Yeah, cool. We have our little picture here. So the first principle, they're not really in order on this little graphic we have, but uh, we put it as like principle of time. It's one of those things that it's just, I put it in as a principle because one of those things that just annoyed me more than anything else is mm. these 20-day flexibility challenges or these kind of, you're sure familiar, everyone's familiar with like 40-day splits challenge on Instagram. Do these eight stretches and you'll get your split. And 20 days later, one person or a few people go, look, it was so successful. I got my splits in five days. That is good. And it's great that they got results. It's not to knock them, but it's just that person is a fast responder to that type of flexibility training. Mm. Just like we have some people who are fast responders to hypertrophy training and these kind of things. So what I came out just by working with enough people, I realized that 18 months is a very good time scale to think on in developing your body in anything. Like think about taking up a new sport. Yeah, you'll learn the basics in a month or two, you'll get off, but you know, you're not really gonna get to grips to it till you've done it for a year, year and a half. You know what I mean? And go like, okay, I actually really like this. So I came up with this thing, like 18 months is our timescale that we're thinking of to get really good near permanent changes in the body by using the system. And this won't mean you're gonna like max out your natural potential in 18 months. Generally, I said there's three levels to this. So if we take someone who comes to me and can't touch the toes, can't sit in a squat, you know, sitting on a floor in a pancake, they're going to be falling backwards, that kind of thing. You know, okay, it's going to take me 18 months to get them to a stage where like, okay, their splits are pretty good. Probably they have like two of them, but not all of them. The pancake, they can lean forward a decent amount and it's comfortable. This would be all semi-cold. Mm. Their bridge would be like, okay, they've got a bridge. It's maybe not perfect, but they've got it. Uh, we take this person now, we give them another 18 months of training. It's like, okay, they've got all their splits. They'll have a really nice bridge. They'll be able to do walkovers. They'll be able to do I don't know, standing tilts. It'll the, the splits and stuff will express in different contexts, handstands and easy without thinking about it too much. We then take Mr. Splits and Mr. Bridge, and then we give them another 18 months. And then we've got them a stage of basically maxing out their genetic potential. So this could be like really deep bridges, over splits, all these kind of things, if people want it. Now, this is the other thing. It's a flexibility journey that you can get off the train wherever you want. It's like, oh, I do BJJ. Maybe you don't need, like, splits completely flat to the floor, but, like, having, you know, you know, a 20-centimeter splits would be fine. And then you go, oh, well, that's where I'm just going to maintain it. So, you know, it's context-specific. and not one of these, like, everyone must do splits and sit <laughs> on their own head. It's, it's a bit stupid. Like, you haven't got time, particularly if, like, you work a normal day-to-day -day life. So... Mm. You know, whatever you want, that's, that's for people to make their own call, how far they want to push it. So the principle of gravity and how we actually manipulate gravity and how we set up these things, we just kind of covered. Mm -hmm. uh, tasking is that idea that like, okay, we're trying to achieve something in the stretch. It's not just a purely passive position, even if we're doing a passive action in the stretch. Mm. Uh, position of speed, seeds. Uh, seeds is one of those ones that's just from... My own observation is that we have, there's one I actually got from Thomas Kerr's credit where credit is due, that in his horse dance, the side splits progression, well, we have, that kind of made me think, hold on, there's probably other ways of thinking this. We have all the same 
seed positions for all the other flexibility positions that they will grow into them by just lengthening in certain directions. That also sets up our isometrics and contractive elements in those positions where we will mm -hmm. go, oh, we set up this position, we go to seed, well, then we can bend the knee this way, we can adduct the leg this way, we can arch the back and rotate one way. And this sets up all the different exercises. So this is how we have basically the infinite exercise generator of the system by just... Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this like thing of uh, of seeds because I read it and I thought it was really interesting and um, you know there's this thought as well that you know you just get better at, at doing the thing right but um, yeah what what are the sort of key starting positions that you identify and um, in terms of like organization do you normally just put it in terms of like goals like pancake front side splits bridge that sort of thing or organized another way uh, it's organized like that just because this is like this comes back to my own personal bias of coming to this from an acrobatic position hmm. that I, you know, I like to train splits, side splits, uh, pancake, pike, and bridge, and some rotation stuff. And this thing, but then I realized with the seed positions that if we basically reiterate all these positions backwards to basic movements, so we have say the horse stance or the squat is the side split and also the pancake. We just change some of the things. The stride, so just stepping forward with both legs and stopping. And think about the counter rotation of the trunk in there. That's mm -hmm. actually a front split. Oh, bending backwards, extending the body in a general extension. Oh, that's our bridge. Doing it in a kneeling position gives us a few other ones. So by having these and understanding, oh, what do we do? How do we do them? And where do we apply them? These turn into all the other flexibility positions by just extending them far enough. If you think about like looking behind yourself, mm. oh, you take that all the way backwards and suddenly you have a bridge. Mm. It's a very simplified way of thinking about it. But then it's like, oh, if something doesn't bend properly or a person doesn't have awareness of this zone of control, then we know which technique to pick and which zone to work in to, uh, to get that bit working. I like this. It's like the genesis of of all the uh, of all the positions, and then you just build it out from from there. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing. And then it's like, oh well, we know this, and it's you know, it's one of the ways we work in the systems. Is we say we're working on a position. We still try to do the position as soon as possible in the set. So say side split. Oh, we'll work a, a hip flexor exercise to get the anterior tilt and pelvis correct. The work three. We'll work a glute exercise. And then we'll do the side splits. So it's kind of, it comes holistically back. We're trying to take the pieces apart, get them working as nice as they can when they're not under a lot of demand or compound exercise, mm -hmm. and then put it together into the exercise so it expresses better. Mm -hmm. And um, I think moving on to some of the other ones that you, that you list there, uh, one that I wanted to ask you about is this thing of velocity. I thought that was really interesting to read about. Yeah. It's one of those ones that doesn't see. This is the thing. It appears everywhere. Think about martial arts. Oh, I learned to kick fast and I learned mm. to follow through and blah. Oh, think of a uh, gymnastic exercise. Oh, I'm going to do a standing back pike. A standing back pike took somersault or took piked somersault. Oh, I'm going to kick, kick up, stretch out the body, and then basically kick my legs as hard as possible. Mm. So these kind of things of like we need a way of teaching people to increase angular momentum in their flexibility but like if we think about all our exercises becoming context specific and we learn to get good at them in the context we do them well if you're a flexibility trainer think about flexibility training it's always slow and controlled and uh but like that's not really reality i want to have choice of what speed i move at mm. so we have to have a way of formalizing this out 
And in all the disciplines that have high flexibility demand, it happens because they train it, but people don't really realize that this is part of the flexibility training as much as anything else. Mm. And at what stage do you start introducing velocity, right? Like, do you start like slow and controlled and then start speeding it up and introducing that challenge? It depends on the person. It really depends on particularly when I'm working with people. In general, we kind of want to start adding it soon enough, but we're just working in controlled ways and we have ways in the system we're just controlling speed or controlling depth. So mm. people get more and more comfortable of like, oh, I'm going to go in there. The simple one to try with this would be just to hold your hands up and then just go into a pike, a fast Jefferson curl down and then mm. come back out as fast as you can. This is nice. If you, can, if you have a good Jefferson curl, you can just stand on the floor so your hands aren't going to go below and the hands can act as a break. And then you can also use them to kind of decelerate yourself. So you I, can, I, I can imagine in experiments, someone just like rolling over and going down really fast and just tipping over. Yeah, it's happened. It's kind of quite good, but it, it's one of the things like it happens a lot in training. Like there was a, a thing we used to do a lot in kind of tumbling as part of one of the coaches would do it and one was like, you had to jump, do a standing pike in the air and then kick your legs up before your hands hit the ground and land in a handstand. So you can imagine to do that and you weren't allowed to do a dive roll. It had to be like jump, hands and feet are still pointing at the ground, out. So these kind of things, they exist in places where you use flexibility, use range of motion. And you can just you know think about it like it occurs in a lot of places, but how do we actually get faster? What's the coaching? How do we get comfortable moving fast? Mm. Like a lot of people can be flexible, but they're not comfortable moving at speed because they need, you know, they've built up a set of preconditions like, oh, I need my the right thing. I need to have the right socks on, whatever it is. And that's mm. just a comfort thing they've built up to be able to express the flexibility. But the usage and the expression is very different in some ways. And we have to train these in different manners. Mm. I love this like context specific um, thought. It's like, you know, all these disciplines that you surveyed as well everything was so integrated with just like the whole discipline that maybe you know, when you went to those coaches and asked them just about stretching then they thought about that separately to like the the other skills that they were performing which actually just added everything together to give like the general result of usable flexibility right yeah yeah exactly this is kind of it. it's like there's because it's so ingrained with the discipline and the technical coaching of the disciplines Mm. Then I can't forget it. It's like you go, oh, you know, you guys go, oh, what's if my I can't kick high? Oh, you need to stretch more. It's like, well, my kicks are kind of slow. Oh, how would you do that? It's like, oh, well, actually, we have these techniques to do that, but it's not really thought of in terms of your range of motion. But then it's also not thought of like, oh, if I get faster at my range of motion, I've given more variety to the body and I've made the body more skillful at using itself. Mm. And then I can go, oh, well, then we can. Uh, put that together and then it sort of gives a, a synergistic effect of like training. Mm. And just going off this thought of that synergy, I, I know like one of the principles in this article as well, you, you mentioned about layering and combinations of exercises. Um, yeah. Could you, could you give like a couple of examples about where you've seen, if you do things in a specific way or combination that it actually gives a faster or better result? Yeah. I think one thing. So we tried the, the, the little triplet I gave an example of in the Jefferson curl. Mm-hmm. That's one example to try out. Uh, hmm. one for people to try out. So the classic of the pissing dog exercise. I don't know if people would see that. Well, that one's always a good one. 
but we can turbocharge that one. It's not an easy one to do. Yeah. So we're going to you're going to do an isometric pissing dog exercise. So either get someone to push against your leg or just set a barbell up to the right height. Mm -hmm. Do it in a slight tilt variation. So you turn side on. So mm -hmm. those familiar with the people call it the hip aeroplane exercise that you see your man from squat university on instagram do a lot with people mm -hmm. that but with your you can use a bent knee if you're not too flexible and push against something really really hard like it's when you're doing these isometric things you need to push like for your maximum intent for about 10 seconds mm -hmm. if you can't contract hard enough go down lower and then increment up higher you do three rounds of that then you're going to do some side kicks so just in the same position bring the leg up and just try to extend the knee as fast as you can. Boom, mm -hmm. boom, five or six of them. Take 30, 40, 50, 60 seconds between each exercise. Then go into your middle splits and perform an isometric and see what happens. I'm going to do that next session and then report on my fundings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've, um, yeah, I've, I've done like so, sometimes like the pissing dog and then after the middle splits and, and notice some things, but yeah, that, extra thought about now after talking with you like different gravity planes and then also this this side kicking yeah uh i've never really thought of it in that way i think it's really interesting yeah another one for people to try if they're feeling masochistic so uh do you need to be able to lean forward on a pancake about 40 degrees for this one to be super effective so sit in your pancake test out your max okay then you are going to set, sandbags are pretty good here, but dumbbells are fine. Put something on your leg, turn over towards one leg. You're going to do a single leg isometric pancake compression. Mm -hmm. You're going to hold that for 10 seconds. You're going to do that three times on each side. It's going to cramp. I'm going to tell you that now for everyone listening and trying this out. It's going to be giving you some awful, awful cramps. Deal with it. Make it cramp harder if you can. Uh, do that. <laughs> then you're going to do a static hanging straddled leg raise so you're going to hold your legs up in a basically like an upside down pancake stretch high as you can you're going to try and hold them for just a combined static of about 20 seconds then come back onto the floor lie down on the floor or sit down on your pancake you can take breaks between this whatever you feel you need some people will be able to transition very quickly between exercises try keep it under 90 seconds but, you know give yourself a bit of time to get it sit on the floor get a yoga block come forward into your pancake and try push the yoga block away and do it in iteration so try for five seconds to push that block away relax for five seconds try to push it away and see what happens i can imagine that there's going to be a lot of people like crying in in all the cramps with all these sort of exercises <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of yeah it's uh, the unfortunate thing some people get lucky and don't cramp it's uh do you ever wonder what, how, you know, you're able to prescribe all these, like, uh, these incredible sensations within people with like cramps and then they still keep on coming back for more pain? Yeah, I don't, it's one of these things I think, uh, it's actually leads us to an interesting point. Actually, I think the, uh, the language we use about flexibility is very inefficient and very nocebic as well. Mm -hmm. If we think about like, what is the, what is the context like if we know from pain science is we, we have sensitization basically and we can increase people's sensitization by like giving them fear that this is going to hurt mm. and this is going to cramp and the pain is so immense from this. Some people thrive in it, but other people will be off put. So this is one of the other things in the system is like, okay, well, we actually have 
quite a good model with the biopsychosocial model that we have our biology, but like the social side of like, oh, this sucks. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And all this kind of negative speak people say about flexibility training. But, you know, if you think about like a heavy set of squats sucks just as much, but people don't say it's painful unless they wreck something. But if you go in, if you're able to examine your own sensations and do it like a 15 rep set of squats with a very heavy weight for that kind of rep zone, the sensation base will be very equivalent to what you experience in a stretch. It's just not been defined as painful. So then people don't call it painful. They just go, oh, that was an intense set. Beast mode, bro. <laughs> I did want to ask you about that because um, I've heard you speak about this like biopsychosocial model within flexibility training and this that, that social aspect. Um, so is that mainly like how you incorporate it through like relabeling or the language use uh, or are there any other sort of ways that you're thinking yes. about in designing for the M3, you know, like people participating? It's, yeah, it's this whole social side. It dictates a lot of things. It's like if we, you know, it's the classic, like if you're the strongest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. That kind of thing. If you're the flexible mm-hmm. person in the room, you're in the wrong room. But it's one of those things that's environmental as much as anything else. Like we can't separate the actor from their environment. Mm-hmm. So someone is performing this task and performing this stretch in a specific environment. So you kind of, swimming in the sea of impressions you're getting where if you're in like oh the stretch oh it's painful oh no it feels so good and depending on what your group environment as well what value they place on flexibility and what everyone else like if everyone else is sitting around you making really strained painful faces you begin to imitate them even if it's not that whereas mm. what we want people to go is like well what is it is it sore oh it's painful well how is it painful where does it hurt what is the sensation? Is it really sore or is it just a strong sensation you're not familiar with that you've immediately just labeled as pain? Mm. These are kind of things that we need to get over. We need to make it like, you need to make it okay to be flexible. It's like, this comes down to, uh, comes down to things like, Oh, these people who label themselves as not flexible. I have so many people come to me. It's like, Oh, I'm not flexible. And they list out what they've done. And like, I don't, not to pick a bone at yoga or anything like that, but it's like, I've done yoga for three years and I'm still really tight. And I'm like, well, they come work with me and then suddenly they, all the gains in six months. Hmm. And it's not because, you know, not because I'm doing anything magical. Yeah, I'm not really. But uh, <laughs> it's just yoga didn't suit them and their flexibility phenotype. Hmm. And then they've got this like negative speakers, like I'm not a flexible person. It's like, well, actually, maybe, and then, like, you know, six months later, a year later, they've got splits, they've got, you know, they can do all the yoga poses that were troubling them. I'm like, oh, actually, you are a very flexible person. You were just doing the wrong training. Mm-hmm. And that, that social aspect, you know, given that it's like an online platform as well, where people are probably like training by themselves, right? Like, just viewing this stuff of the computer, do you view that as like a pretty challenging aspect to overcome? I think, in some ways, the social side of things, on the online format is actually to benefit, mm. which is odd enough. But if we think about every single kind of cool discipline, we think about skateboarding, breakdancing, juggling, acrobatics, calisthenics, anything that has a very strong online base. Mm. If you look at the progression, once it develops an online community, suddenly the progression curve, what becomes normal when you're starting out is suddenly just the basics. You know, what was advanced is now basic because people have got this kind of social proof from an online method or a smaller kind of crew. So this is one of those things that was like, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, you know, this is uh, this kind of online community as much gives as much validation as like being that weird on the gym trying to stretch by yourself. Mm-hmm. 
And I do have to mention how I think the first time I came across you as well, I think you're always like um, very open with your thoughts and like always contributing to a, like a lot of online communities, whether it be Reddit or, you know, like Kit Lachlan's forum uh, yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I, I guess just as a side note, you know, appreciative that you're always, ha- I guess, had this, this good online presence where you're actually giving, you know, like your, your thoughts and what you're finding out to, I guess, you know, the public forum, like I think sometimes other coaches maybe feel a little bit different, you know, maybe they're just like, I don't want to say everything that, that I have. Um, Do you know what I mean? Protective. Yeah. You know, that, that does lead into when I first um, I came across your stuff, I think you were using this term like open source movement. Do you, yeah. Do you still like push that or what was thinking behind that? It's kind of, it was when I was like, this is the kind of thing I kind of segue the thing. So if you look up like everything I teach, you know, I don't really teach movement. I think it's too, I think it's too, I think it was a good concept at the time coming out of gymnastics, strength training and other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. thanks to Edo for kind of popularizing it. But uh, I think it's that kind of, uh, it was too generalized and people were getting, I was getting a lot of specific questions about flexibility. That was the main thing people would come to find me for. Mm-hmm. So this is what I've kind of segued into that because it's the thing people seem to have the most uh, trouble with. So I kind of do that. I still want to share a lot. I spend like alert, you know, there's a couple of hours a day dedicated to answering questions I get on social media now more than forums, but I still do that more than anything else or more than anything else. But uh, this kind of thing, but it's like, it's kind of, there's a limit to how much you can share that I'm beginning to understand that like some of it just has to be transmitted in person mm. or in a kind of teaching situation where people go, okay, I have this, I'm going to watch it and I'll learn it. So there is that, there's some stuff that can't be shared. There's other stuff that uh, it's kind of annoying me lately. There's a very consumptive nature on the internet where people just want to see things. It's very voyeuristic. Mm. See this and then not do it. So that kind of annoys me slightly. But uh, I think in terms of... So that I've kind of strayed away from the, the pure movement scene and just want to focus on what I do well. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think movement has a, it's become a bit too fractured, I suppose. Have you seen that yourself? That uh, there's different infighting groups over who's doing true movement and this is that and mm. yeah it's interesting kind of i did want to ask you whether you saw yourself sort of affiliated with you know the movement culture or, or, or movement in general um yeah because i guess it's been transforming into various many many things these days i, I yeah. don't really know what it is either but um it's good to hear that yeah maybe you're just focusing on whatever you're doing right and like the people will just come for whatever you're you're trying to teach right yeah that's basically what it comes down to more than anything else there's no uh no point trying to teach everything or saying you do everything so mm. that's where i think that's a bit of a trap for a lot of people that ends up or notice a lot of anxiety is they might be building themselves as a movement teacher and they're very good at teaching certain things but they can't teach everything and that uh causes a certain amount of anxiety to happen yeah i guess like, like, well, if you if you align yourself to that label of movement teacher right like it again it's like so so broad so it's like yeah uh, it's impossible to know everything, right? Like, yeah. Uh, or I'd love to meet the person that had, you know, centuries of experience to understand the whole, the whole scope of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, uh, uh, the closest person I suppose would be Steve Morris. Hmm. Do you ever check him out? He's a uh, very good, uh, but yeah, other than that, it's, uh, yeah, it's too, it's not too broad. It's just, I do very specific things. I coach acrobatics, I coach flexibility, 
Mm. I do some martial arts stuff, and I do a lot of object manipulation. That's kind of my uh, niche fields that I'm very good at. <laughs> and I guess one um, one other question I had about flexibility is about like this um, thing of like genetics and bone structure. Like, how do you see that sort of affecting people's uh, flexibility? It's definitely one of these things like we, this is the kind of the problem, we can only find it out by two ways, by dissecting you or by just training until you find you reach some limits. Like it's uh, mm. the, always talk about like reaching this kind of say, contortion, this kind of, there is a contortion gene. So I always say contortionists are made. They are not, uh, our contortionists are born, they're not made. So you can make someone super flexible. But then at the higher, like everything, at the higher echelons of these skills, it relies a lot on bone structure, and like mm. spinal processes and how far they can bend and what directions they can bend. So in general, it's one of those things that like, you do have to be aware of at the higher level. But in terms of like day-to-day general acrobatic level, it's not really going to come into play. Mm-hmm. And you know, most people should be able to side splits. Most people should be able to get a side split where like somewhere above their knees is flat to the ground. Maybe they will not get like perfectly, completely 180 degrees squished flat. That's okay though. Like I know people who perform for Cirque du Soleil who have side splits like that. So I guess it's interesting, right? Because sometimes when you're working on these these things like splits, it feels like you're like, oh, it's like bone on bone, right? Like I'm I'm so stiff that it's like, I've heard this before, like with many people as well. It's just like, oh, it's just like my bone structure as well. It just makes it super difficult. Yeah. Yeah. But is that more like just, potentially like the training methodology that that we've taken it could be just it would hurt out at seeing the person but it it could just be like they just don't like we have alignments for this if we just look at everyone's squat let's say you train in a decent gym decent crossfit gym decent anything where they have a good way of teaching people to squat mm. powerlifting whatever let's just say crossfit because they always try to squat deep and you get everyone to sit down in their overhead squat you look around the room uh, basically, everyone will be in an overhead squat. But if we look at every individual, their squat is going to be different. There's going to be very different. It's going to be very hard to find two people who have an exactly identical squat, mm. either with them down a foot turnout, knees going out to the side, external rotation, knees forward, torso lean, all these kind of things. It's the exact same with flexibility positioning, mm. that we have a generalized concept of what we want the position to be like. But then everyone will have their individual specificity of what alignment works for them. So if you say to someone, oh, this is your alignment, and then they go, oh, well, actually, I'm just getting bone on bone. You're trying to force them to that alignment, whereas you should have a way of actually helping this person investigate their body to find what is their personal alignment and which Mm -hmm. way can their body move. Mm -hmm. So this is taking the, the, the tendencies to have group tendencies, which we find a lot in academic and scientific research, to individual response and individual variety. And, you know, is it through, I guess, these online programs as well, that that's part of the process you're, you're trying to teach people, like to find their own individual Yeah, alignment? exactly. And yeah. This, is, this is where we come from using the seed positions because the seed positions will give you an optimal alignment to start the process of doing an exercise from. Mm. Once you have an optimal starting point, then you'll eventually, the only way to solve the problem of this position is by maintaining your optimal alignment and enhancing it over the course of developing it. Mm. So this way we've gone back to first principles, basically, the individual and how they do this position. And then we'll find not just a split, but your split. Uh, uh, Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like we all move in very, very individual ways as well, right? Like, um, yeah. 
I know for myself as well, like working on middle splits, there's a certain way like to articulate the pelvis, which makes it just seem like it's actually possible rather than like another way where it's like, yeah, it feels yeah. like that, that bone on bone sensation or like a brick wall sort of stopping me. Yeah. 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 So yeah, exactly. in terms of, uh, I guess like rotational cap- capability of, you know, like, the shoulder and hip joint like say um per se how do you see that normally um integrating with you know like more linear directions like does it have carryover is it important to consider as well yeah it's important to consider i think it's one of those things like there's some schools that is the most important thing but you must have like certain amount of external rotation and certain mm. internal rotation uh i'd always question like i always ask a question like why doesn't this person have something and it's an interesting one. We get a lot of people who are making, say, internal rotation is correlated very strongly with back pain. Maybe it is, or maybe the people who have no back pain also have no internal rotation. So we have to watch out for these correlations, these possibly false ones or possibly right ones, mm. and also these kind of biostructural explanations of pain and lack of function. But if someone has, like, say you have an athlete, on a sprinter, and they have no internal rotation, but they've been sprinting for 20 years, like, well, why don't they have internal rotation? Why don't they do they need it? Would giving them more internal rotation enhance, enhance their technique or would it not come out in their technique and they'd just be better at the internal rotation exercises? Mm-hmm. They're kind of uh, these kind of things you have to watch out for. In general, you, know, you need to be able to balance them. There are certain ratios that you're looking at, but it happens a lot. Say the shoulder one is an interesting one because we can shift the arc of the shoulder joint quite successfully that people will still have 180 or 170 degrees of internal external rotation summed but they'll have like their certainly you can see here myself on the video like my external rotation is mm-hmm. you can see here like boom what's that nearly 40 degrees behind the head and then i go in and my internal rotation isn't what we can see it still gives me about 170 degrees mm-hmm. so it's a uh, these kind of things that we can shift the arc. So then people are like, you need 70 degrees of internal rotation. I'm like, well, actually, maybe we don't. Maybe we've shifted the arc because we work overhead so much. That's how it happens. That's really interesting. And so do you normally find that it sort of stays around 170, 180, but then it slides around like either externally yeah. bias or the other way? Yeah, like these are sort of base numbers. It can be much higher. Like at certain points, like when I was really pushing a lot of the overhead stuff, I had like... 220 degrees of some internal and external rotation in the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Now I've let that fade now because it was causing problems. Like it was causing problems about 15 years ago. But, so I let that fall away. Mm. But it's just one of those ones that, uh, yeah, you need to uh, you need to respect the organism, but also what the organism does. So we're not extracting the organism from its environment. So my environment at the time would have been training overhead a lot working a lot of handstands a lot of tumbling basing catching on flying trapeze these kind of things that required quite a high amount of this but never really put me into internal rotation Mm. whereas yeah whereas someone who doesn't work overhead they probably wouldn't express the same as me but they might have the same total arc in the shoulder yeah 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 that that, that's that's interesting i've been i've been thought about it in that way as well within like summing up the both the external and internal rotation and then and then viewing viewing the arc but um apart from what we've uh 
just gone through before, I guess, are there any sort of other aspects within, you know, mobility, flexibility training that you think is really uh, commonly overlooked? Uh, you know, my number one one I always come back to is time. It just takes time for the body to adapt and get used to it. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's one of the things I think we're in this weird, we're in this weird age that uh, the research on flexibility is just not great. It's just not, there's not uh, enough of it done more than anything else. There's not enough quality stuff done. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, well, we've got a lot of guesses, but we don't have answers. Unlike, say, endurance training. It's basically almost mathematical at this stage. We, you know, you're a 40-year-old male and you heart rate is this and you run to run a mm -hmm. 10K and you want to reduce your time by this. You can basically almost compute a program. You will do this amount of days of training. You'll train at this pace on one day. You'll train at this pace on the other day. And we expect your results to be within like this kind of zone. And we expect you to get your ultimate result at whatever. Hmm. So we just have so many testing systems where the flexibility, we just don't have them as much as we do in the other disciplines. So we're kind of in the wild west of performance enhancement in terms of what we could be finding. So I'd always be uh, cautioning people who are looking for definitive answers from research. I'm not saying it's not guiding, but it's not there yet. Mm. And, you know, it will, it's definitely improving. There's a definite trend uptick in trends of people investigating this stuff, but we don't have the answers yet. For and then it's also, uh, I suppose the other thing, this big thing is the training response to flexibility is very different from individual to individual. It's non-linear for most things and you get a worse result when you're a beginner in contrast to strength training where you get your best results, your best increases mm. when you're starting. So the more advanced you get, the less you have to do and the better results you get. So it's kind of, it can be very easy to get disheartened because you just don't think anything is working. So you have to kind of temper that, I suppose. I guess that's yeah. where, yeah, going back to that social aspect or the emotional aspect, right? Like, because you're so used to like strength training, getting the gains like quite quickly, right? And then if... Yeah. If you're trying something and then so let's say within a month or even two months, like not much is happening, it's very easy to just be like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to switch methods like this. This is not going to be yeah. doing anything, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's going to, people jump around a lot. Uh, maybe it is working. You just don't know it. There's something internal happening. It tends to, you tend to get your flexibility results in kind of jumps more mm -hmm. than anything else. You get like, oh, this, suddenly I just went deeper and it felt easier and it was really easy. And then it stays like that for another two two months and then you get another jump and so with um i guess pairing flexibility training with other sorts of training let's say you know a really common one calisthenics yeah. like body weight strength training that sort of thing you know what should people sort of consider when when doing like i guess concurrent training with flexibility training like the way you like to teach it uh yeah i think one of the things people need to understand the flexibility training is another stress on the organism Hmm. You're applying a stressor and as an adaptation demand, and you can only adapt to so many things at once. And uh, this is what kills a lot of people is they just do too much at once. They'll do, oh, I'll try to do an ultimate leg program to increase my vertical jump, and it'll have like eight exercises in it. I'll train that three times a week, and then I'll try to do two times a week of training isometric side splits and isometric front splits and these kind of things. And then you're like, oh, well, nothing gives results or the results are suboptimal. There has to be a way, this is one of the key things we've been working on, is how do we actually combine all these in synergistic ways that we get the results of both things at once. Mm. Now, obviously, you're never going to get 
the best results if you have a tailored focus program only on one thing. You know, once you get your squat up, you only train squats and you only do that, and everything else is just geared towards that. Obviously, the results will be better, but how do we have a program that's more holistic and gives results on everything? Doesn't take away from one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like you ha- you have to be like real to yourself as well. If you have multiple goals as well, like maybe you can get them all, but it just takes you going back to that factor that you're saying that was most important time, right? Like you'd probably just have to yeah. extend that expectation of time. But um, given that you've uh, been now coaching for so long, you know, both in person and uh, you know, online as well, I've heard uh, uh, many good things about your online coaching, I guess, what's the difference between, I guess, an average sort of teacher or coach and becoming better or, or a great coach? What do you see in your eyes? Uh, I think there's kind of a journey that people to becoming a great coach that people don't really understand is the first kind of thing is like, you have to understand your tools. You have to understand the exercises you're prescribing intimately. It doesn't mean you need to know a thousand exercises. You need to know, you know, 10 really good exercises and you need to be able to know how to adapt them to everyone you see, not just thing. So you need to go, Oh, how can I, treat a guy how can i get a guy who comes to me and goes i'm 140 kilos i'm really badly overweight and i'd really love to be able to do chin-ups it's a big life goal and the thing is like well how can i get that person to train chin-ups in a way that would be pushing him in his direction so he felt like he's working on so getting his motivation uh work on the converse side of that like how do i train the 50 year old or 50 kilo 50 year old woman who also wants chin-ups two very different clients and just being able to understand how to adapt chin-ups, just that very basic exercise to these two people and what kind of progressions, regressions, tools you have will make you a much better coach than learning like a hundred different chin-up variations. It's also understanding that uh, we always go into coaching with our idea of like how we train and how that would be really good because we enjoy it. But understanding how, how we train isn't actually conducive to a lot of other people and what works for us isn't so how do we find what works for people either if we're doing it as the the person administering the program or if we're trying to coach them into finding what works for them mm. uh the other thing is just like when you start coaching first you need to understand your tools and your exercise and how to get them and apply them and progress them and progress them the next kind of thing is like you need to learn how to prescribe someone else's program this is one that's uh it's quite easy to do in strength coaching because we strength coaching and endurance because we already have all these program templates we think about your doctor your doctor doesn't invent new drugs. He goes in, he assesses you and goes, because of this, you have X, Y, and Z wrong with you. We're going to give you this dose of this drug for this long. So understanding, okay, I have this really effective program done by Louis Simmons or whoever. I'm just going to give this person that program and I'm going to help them administer it properly. So I'm going to go, okay, you're going to do this program twice a week and this exercise you're going to do in this way because it suits you a bit better and this is how you do it, and this is how you take the program. Oh, and then you see, can you get results doing someone else's program? Then the next stages go, well, I'll start designing my own programs for these people. Mm-hmm. And that's when you begin to get a little more customized. And how do I make everything work together? And I think it's one of those things, everyone wants to design their own programs at the start. Mm-hmm. But designing a program for someone is, it's an incredibly complicated thing when you really get down to it. Like it's not just, it's not just like, it's not just a collection of exercises on a piece of paper. It's your program is your sum totality of your interactions with the client. Mm. Like who are they? What do they do? Where are they in relation to their goals? 
what training equipment have they got available to them? Do they understand how to use the training? Have you coached the exercises? Do they understand that how they eat has to be conducive to the controls? How are they sleeping? What is their daily stressors? Uh, you know, how are things going week to week? Are they got a, a holiday coming up? Are they not? What is their consistency? What is their expected consistency? What is their expectation of the results? What is the environment they train in? These are all things that have to be answered in the program to get results. Otherwise, you will get results, but they're only be short-term results. This is one of the things I have with online training is like most people on average stay with me for about 18 months, which is much longer than the industry average for even any kind of in-person coaching mm -hmm. because I can actually do all this. And I've only learned to do that through experience. Mm. And it sounds like, you know, doing that as well takes more energy as well, right? Because you have to ask all these questions. You have to get to know that person outside of just like, just training, right? There's, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's all that other factors that you listed there that then you can use in your decision-making to be like, Oh, okay. Like, am I going to program this for, for, for that person? Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Do you, do you think that I guess as a coach yourself, um, that you need to attain some sort of level of, um, of practice before being able to teach a certain thing or can you, can you teach other things mm. outside of what you've done? It, it just really depends on what you're doing. Now, let's say you can, you can't. It's one of those things like I can teach things that are within my domain. Like I could quite happily help someone with some pole dancing moves, but I've never done pole dancing because mm -hmm. I can understand these kind of acrobatic aerial moves and how they work. Mm. Other stuff, like if someone said to me, hi, I really want to improve my hammer throwing, and I really need to work on my hammer throwing technique and athletics, I was like, <laughs> you know, I can get you stronger. I can, you know, if you tell me, if the person, this is the thing where your training dialogue comes in, someone goes to go, oh, I want to improve my hammer throwing technique. Oh, okay, I don't really know anything about hammer throwing. Why don't you tell me what you think are your roadblocks and what's not working, and maybe I'll be able to make them better. Mm. but the pure technique you know you need a technical coach or you need someone who understands it can you coach much higher than your level uh you can because otherwise we would have no improvement in any field mm -hmm. so it's definitely a process of like okay i can coach people who are, could do things that i could never be able to do just either because they have the right genetics for them or for that uh yeah i think this is kind of one of the things that comes up it's uh the fitness industry problem you can get your kickboxing instructor certificate in a weekend and you are now a certified kickboxing <laughs> instructor. But like the people who do that kind of thing should have no, uh, I prefer to take lessons from the Thai guy who never even heard the word certification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, I, yeah, I guess, uh, just, uh, I guess personally as well, I, I'm always interested as to your earlier background as well. I've seen some like, you know videos of you performing that sort of thing but yeah what what was the early emmet like um how, how does it compare to now uh hmm. i don't know i feel like i'm a different person i kind of disavowed the past because i don't really <laughs> exist in it or relate to who i was but obviously it was uh so as the early earliest kind of thing i was doing was inline skating back when that was cool um, so we'd be doing all the kind of extreme stuff like sliding down rails and jumping off buildings and shit like that. It's like parkour with wheels on. Mm. And, you know, I was doing that as my main kind of activity. And then when I got into university, first time around, I was studying theoretical physics and maths. There was a juggling circus club in university. I was like, oh, cool, I'll do that. 
I started getting good at that. I was really into it. And then I started performing in nightclubs and stuff in Dublin. I was like, oh, wait, make a career out of this. <laughs> so then I found out there was, I didn't even know there was a such thing as a circus school. So I found out about that. Then I was like, okay, I'll go to circus school. So then I was like, okay, you know, I could do a bit of everything. I could tumble. That wasn't too weak. It wasn't too terrible. But uh went to what was called a prep school, which is to kind of prepare you for an audition for a university, one of the four ones. I'd done that. Then I got into university, done that. Then I kind of performed for quite a while. Uh, then I had an accident where I broke my wrist, which stopped me being able to flex or extend the wrist for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, I do, what does every broken circus performer do? They become either a Pilates teacher, a yoga teacher, or a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And then they go in and they kind of go like, oh, do personal training with me and you'll get this amazing body just like me. And, you know, do Pilates and you too will be able to do a thousand leg lifts. And so it's kind of, a bit of false marketing in some ways i think where it's like no 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 no. it's the 15 years of climbing a rope every day and the ten thousand <laughs> leg lifts and handstand presses you've done that made you look like that not a, not what you're doing now so yeah i was doing that for a while uh yeah it's quite successfully i suppose and then i was like just that was probably about a year or two before the movement thing started being a thing so i was still hanging out in forums and there's the early days of gymnastic bodies when it was cool then Kit, obviously, his form grew out of that. And then a lot of people, Edo, came out of there and all these kind of things. And uh, But then people began seeking me out to train movement. And I was like, well, or to go around, yeah, someone could coach acrobatics and handstands and flexibility and all these kind of things. And I was getting more and more clients who were into it. Then I was living in London, so then I moved back to Dublin and just took a break, basically. And was just working. Yeah, I was just basically working coaching people. Uh, I was just doing my acrobats, but then I was getting more and more requests for this one, the Split Switch name came because I'd get people coming to me for training flexibility specifically for the other disciplines they're training. And then I was getting more and more requests for I was answering questions online, basically, and getting more and more requests to work with me directly. So then I started online coaching mm-hmm. and just took it from there, really. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting journey. And like you kind of started. Uh, yeah, I guess teaching as well at this interesting point in time, right? When all these online coach, coaches started, uh, I guess, really gaining speed. Maybe it was like, you know, with the proliferation of now, like the so social media and everything as well. But it seemed to, yeah, especially in the past 10 years, right? Really transformed yeah. a, a beast of a thing. But, um, what, what does your training look like these days? These days at the moment. Uh, so at the moment I am, um nearly five years into a one-year research project on Taoist martial arts that I've been uh, training with a guy called Serge Augier. So I started off with, a, I normally sort of would block my training into one-year exploration zones, but then this stuff got so interesting, I've been at it for five years now. Uh, so I normally, most of my training today is based on that. I've been training a lot more handstands and hand balance at the moment, just for just to get back into it. Uh, other than that, day-to-day training, for the last while because we've been locked down has been terrible so lockdown in australia is probably a very different beast than lockdown in ireland where we basically suffered 40 days of rain twice in a row <laughs> while lockdown so none of the gyms were open and you could go to a park if it was raining so uh very limited in what i could train mm. well so yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm in Melbourne right now, so <clears throat> we're still in like quite permanent lockdown. So I'm, I'm yeah, uh, <laughs> I heard you guys got like hit bad. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So hopefully that will change in a couple of weeks. I'm crossing my fingers. But um, yeah, maybe, what was your attraction with the, that Taoist martial arts and what keeps you there? Yeah, uh, this one kind of came from... So I was just researching tendon training. I was just interested in training the tendons and what that actually meant. And we have one concept in the West. Then you'd always find it mentioned in martial arts and other stuff, like particularly sort of Tai Chi, like the proper styles and Jing Yi and stuff like this. They're talking about like training the tendons. You must train your tendons. And it's all about tendon strength. And they have a not real strength, but tendon strength, basically. Like, well, what does that mean? Not using muscles, use tendons. So I was like, okay, well, I was trying to bit myself, trying to get some books. There was no real good books on it. So then a friend of mine, Craig Mallet, who is based in Brisbane, he found a guy, Serge, who is the other thing is like finding finding legit teachers is pretty hard. And he'd been training these for quite a long time. He found, found someone, Serge, who could teach these and started teaching online. So I was like, okay, I'll just train it for a bit. So I started training it and then just got more and more into it. I was like, oh, this very deep and rich thing going on that doesn't really exist in the West and maybe their explanation doesn't line up with how we would explain it in the West, but it's still something. Mm. So, and what, what is tendon strength? What is, what's your understanding? Uh, hmm. It goes into many different layers. This is the interesting thing is like a very fundamental layer. We're taking the fascia in the body and the specific exercise you do. And now there's like, a lot of things that like happen in the body, like say at the clavicles, like where you'd have these indentations, they're completely filled in. Like, I don't know, you can see it here, but my armpits now bulge out with fascia. Mm-hmm. You can see it there. Like, I don't have armpits. I've had changes in all my body um, from all this kind of training. So that was uh, unexpected, but quite interesting. It's also just like one of the key things what you're looking to do in all these arts is to reunite the body or to unite the body stronger. Obviously it's united, but to unite it stronger. So when you're doing one action, the whole body is actually getting prepared or involved in that action. So it's not just, Oh, I'm lifting a cup of tea. It's like, Oh, it's initiating from my foot. So that suddenly everything gets a lot more efficient. Mm. Uh, Yeah. It's very interesting. So it's kind of, that's what I talk about, like keeping their strength to their old age. And like say Serge, the teacher, have like you know, I've done. I'm not gonna say a lot of martial arts, but you know, I've done a decent amount of them. And like he can still hit you in ways like from you know these one-inch punches, but the actual legit ones that just are like unlike anything you've been hit with before. You're like, okay, what's going on there? And, you know, I've been hit by boxers, I've been hit by Thai guys. You know, still not the same. So these kind of things uh, are very interesting. Then you just get into the whole system as a whole meditative components, spiritual components as well. That's quite uh, deep, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, all those like sort of internal martial arts always, when you look as an outsider in, they always seem very like mysterious, right? Like, because I guess you you can't find articles much about it or the ones that you do sort of talk about it in this, in this mysterious light. So it's, yeah, it's interesting hearing your insights um yeah i think like a lot of the mysterious stuff is as much like marketing speak than everything else it's kind of it's one of those interesting things like it's a lot of uh the mark like marketing hit those martial arts as well as much as anything so you see like you know all these big long forms and all these kind of things that look pretty Mm. that's not the actual training it's just like it was marketing kind of things they all came in about like 150 200 years ago apparently and a lot of it was just like 
you know, the training qualities, like if you look at the original Tai Chi, there was not a lot in it in mm-hmm. terms of like form or anything. It was just like you train qualities and then you wrestle. And that was give you the Tai Chi. And then, you know, even in the names of them, it's like Tai Chi, great ultimate fist is the name. <laughs> like, you know, it's... They, uh, they have awesome names for some of their, you know, <laughs> moves and poses yeah. and things like that. <laughs> So yeah, so you know, it's, it's it does like rely on this Wu Wixia fashion and thing that was uh, pimping it back in the day, I suppose. So there's that kind of thing as well as much as anything else. And I guess the final question would be, you know, if you if you could give one book to somebody, uh, like what would you choose? Uh, hmm. I oh, asked this because. For all those listening, I'm I'm doing this interview with Emmett, and he's got like a whole bookcase full of books behind him. <laughs> so yeah, this question just popped up. You know, it's just like yeah, so many books. It's really have to ask me a topic. Uh, inflexibility, I suppose, because the main thing. There's two books that I always recommend to people. Is one is Stretching Scientifically by Thomas Kurz, uh, the other one uh, Stretching and Flexibility by Kit Lachlan. Those two are. They're really interesting. Just going back over them actually for some articles. And uh, Thomas Curse has a great warning in his book to never do partner stretching. It's crap and not worth the time. And then Kit Lachlan uh, exclusively focuses, or not exclusively, but a huge amount of their methodology relies on partner stretching. <laughs> and they're both very uh, effective methods. And it's quite interesting to have these two books where you got one was just like a pure solo method and other techniques and ideas. And then one that is uh, very partner based and very other side of things but both of them work surprisingly both of them work very well so then you're like well what's the actual picture maybe read both of them and you'll get it yeah yeah, i i like that um you know having two competing sides of the coin right and then that kind of forces you to observe things as they are right to develop your own methodology which i guess you've done yeah 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 i think they're pretty good but um definitely yeah with uh yeah all that you've got planned like the m3 stuff uh when can we start to expect to see these uh this being rolled out uh we're working on a speeded up timeline so i don't want to actually give any release dates just because we'll have someone trying to rush out their own version of it <laughs> as happens with other stuff uh yeah so i can't say that we're working on a very accelerated timeline for at the moment so sooner than you think but not as soon as you might imagine awesome well i'll be hanging out for yeah whatever updates come come up i'm really interested in your work um you know always Ah, always um learn something from either one of your your posts or you know listening to one of your talks uh i think you know in an earlier youtube video where you broke down the bridge that was the first time where i really started thinking about you know things in different components as well so today as well has been uh really enlightening i just want to say thank you for for jumping on oh no problem thank you for having me episode 23 that's a wrap awesome awesome stuff there i don't know about you guys but listening back on that chat i really learned a lot i uncovered a lot and i'm really excited to see what emmett comes out i think is really pushing the boundaries here, uncovering a lot of mystery that's normally associated with this whole mobility practice. So hope you guys enjoyed that one. Remember, love to get your feedback. I'd love to connect with you guys. Send me a message. You can find me on Instagram. That's at Fayon P, at P-H-A-O-N-P. Love to hear from you guys. Also, if you enjoy it, please share it with a friend. 
I love spreading this. I love creating this community and sharing this with other people. So yeah, if you enjoy it, please do that. Otherwise, I'll see you on the next episode.